Hey, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. We will read a little bit from Isaiah, but um, in all transparency, we're going to be everywhere. So you can try to keep up and turn those pages. You can write them down. I have no slides, but the one you see up there. So we'll just go from there. And I want to say it is an honor to be here, uh, not only this Sunday, but for the next month. Um, your pastor is a dear friend of mine, and I love him very, very much, and I hope he is sleeping or worshiping somewhere right now. So before I get into what I have prepared for you this morning, I want to clarify that what I plan to present over the next month, over the next four weeks, is um, more characterized as a Lerman. If you do not know what a Lerman is, that is a lecture slash sermon. Okay, that, that's what a Lerman is. So if you leave here today and you think, that was a lot of information, more like a lecture. Did you feel lectured? Did you feel like he was lecturing you? I warned you, okay? If you leave here today and you say, that was not enough information, he didn't cover everything he possibly could have. That was more like a sermon. I warned you. And the title of these next four sermons is sure to grab the attention of pretty much any Christian today. And that is because for many Christians in the church, the topics of government and all that is wrapped up in that terms is taboo, controversial, that which is not to be spoken of. For example, what is the, the one rule in every workplace across America? Two things you will not talk about at work, religion and politics, <laughs> right? Just as in the country, great fences make great neighbors. So in the workplace, not talking about those two things keeps people happy. Some of us have been taught or may have not thought about the connection between the God we worship and the world we live in. And I suspect, as I was, Many of us have been taught or told that what we believe about God stays over here, and all of our convictions about everything else is to stay over there, even if our convictions come from the God that we believe in. But I hope you come to realize that your faith was not given to you so that you would lock it away in your heart or store it between your ears. The faith, once delivered to the saints, was given to the church so that it would permeate throughout all of creation. Amen? So here is the big idea for the next four weeks. Consider today a very lengthy introduction in the next three weeks, helping us to unpack it in areas that we live in. Self, family, our cities, our nation. Here's the big idea, and it's very simple. Jesus is Lord. That is the basic Christian confession. Jesus is Lord. Peter proclaims in Acts chapter 2, speaking of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of the, the first and greatest sermons to ever be preached. Here's what he says. Let all of the house of Israel therefore now know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Jesus of Nazareth, is the Son of God, who is both Lord and Christ. He is our sovereign King, 
and he is the only Savior. And in terms of what this lordship means for you and for us and for the world, listen to Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. Most of you have, will look at that and say, oh, uh, it's the wrong time of year. This is what we read on Christmas. But this is for all times and all places. Listen to what it says. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We know that the child born to us will uphold the government. All government. And this government will rest upon his shoulders. And in the increase of his government, there will be no end. Of the increase of the lordship and reign of Jesus Christ, there will never be, there will never ever be an end. It will continue on for all eternity. This is a quote from a man named Gary DeMar who wrote a book titled God in Government. It's big. You should get it and spend four years reading it. It'll take you that long. We know that the child spoken of in Isaiah 9 is Jesus. So then, the government of Jesus Christ began at his birth, and we know it will never end. While some see this fulfillment as yet in the future, this is where some of this will challenge you a bit, Scripture tells us that Jesus, David's son and Lord, in Mark chapter 12, has ascended to the throne that is rightly his. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 7. God did fulfill his promise to David in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, David's descendant. The Lord had sworn an oath to David, a truth that which he will not turn back from. And this truth is, of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. Psalm 132. When Jesus was raised from the dead, God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. And here's what he continues with. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Where is Jesus Lord? Everywhere. What is he Lord of? Everything. He put all things in subjective under his feet, and he gave him as the head over all things, the church. That's you. Praise God. You should smile more. This is why Jesus is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This means, church, that no human government or institution can claim to be independent of God's government since Jesus is Lord and King. Neither can any government claim to be the sole government denying all other governments. In Psalm 2, rulers are instructed and commanded to worship the Lord with reverence by paying homage to the Son, lest he become angry. Even King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Daniel chapter 4. Now, this does tell us that God's law, God's rule is autonomous. He is a law unto himself. He does according to what he wishes. On the other hand, man and our governments must honor the king of heaven. This makes the governments of men dependent upon the one government of God. 
Paul goes on to describe God as the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This means that God is the sole governor, the only sovereign being who delegates authority to everyone below him, even kings and rulers and princes and presidents. One of my favorite quotes to reflect on this past year has been Abraham Kuyper's quote. as a prime minister of the Netherlands, and he was a theologian. And he said, there is not a square inch in this whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There is not a square inch in our whole domain in all of our existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The blood of Jesus Christ has bought everything. Everything. This means the most faithful thing the church can do, you can do, your family can do, the most faithful thing you can do and the most loving thing for your neighbor is to proclaim unashamedly the lordship of Jesus Christ over all things. If you want to love your neighbor as yourself, and we ought to, that is all of our life, loving your neighbor well means telling them Jesus is in control of everything. And then... Live as though you believe it. We are really good at defending our Bibles, aren't we? We love to get into debates where we say, no, no, look, look at the Bible. I'm going to defend God today before you. I have all this evidence in creation. And look at the stars and look at the sun and look at the moon. And God really exists. And look at the Bible. What you're doing is wrong and, and what the church is doing is right. But church, just step back for a moment from defending the Bible and just believe it. The best way to defend the scriptures is to believe them. Just believe them in public and let God, let God defend himself. You don't need to defend a lion trapped in a cage. You just need to let it out and let it defend itself. This is what it means to self-govern. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. We belong to him. We have been bought with a price. This means we are commanded to look different than the world around us. We are not commanded to blend in, tolerating a few minor sins here or there so that we would not be seen as prudish or irrelevant or out of touch. No, James chapter 4 says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And in a world full of people enslaved to their sin and controlled by their lusts, we are commanded to be a people who walk in the Spirit. We are called to put off the old and put on the new. Church, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We know and understand the grief of what it's like to live in bondage to sin. Amen? And we know the glorious hope of what it's like to be freed from that bondage. This means we will look totally different than the world. We will look different, smell different, speak different, think differently, all under the authority of Jesus Christ. And this is good news for the world. This is good for our world when the church is who she is supposed to be. The church is a body of joyful, militant warriors 
who have been transferred out of our darkness and into his marvelous light. First Peter chapter 2. We are not the church passive. We are the church militant. If we were the church passive, Jesus would have said, stay therefore and don't do anything and wait for me to return. Don't go to the nations, huddle together and close the door. Pray really hard. I'll come back for you soon. That's not what's written in Matthew chapter 28. One of the most famous verses in all the church is one of the best portions of scripture in all the church. Go therefore and what? Make disciples of all nations. Go, not stay. Go. We're not the church passive. We are the church militant. A band of joyful, imperfect, yeah, as we may be. Imperfect warriors who have been transferred out of our darkness into his marvelous light. And as joyful warriors, we have been given the great mission to bust down the gates of hell and set the captives free. That's what you're called to do. When Jesus says he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that does not mean we stay here and defend against gates ramming against us. Gates aren't an offensive weapon. They're in the ground holding people out. What is the church called to do? Well, this is what Paul tells the church in 2 Corinthians. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. And the word of Christ will destroy every stronghold. It'll break down every demonic gate. It will set the captives free. Paul commissions us to take the gospel to unbelieving Gentiles. Acts 26. And you should love that one because that's you. Remember, the, that which we believe was started on the other side of the planet by 12 people who looked nothing like us. Paul told Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, 1 Timothy 1 and 6. Paul said he, sought, he fought the good fight of faith, 2 Timothy 4. The Bible says we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness, and we should desire for others to be rescued as well, Colossians 1. And the war between light and darkness, the principalities and powers of the air, are described in Ephesians 6. And I've already said this, but Jesus said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16. Paul tells us our warfare has the power to destroy strongholds, arguments, and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 10. Will we obey? Will we obey? Take that a step further. How can we obey if we can't even govern ourselves? How can we obey if we look like the world? What your neighbors need, what the person who does not worship Jesus Christ needs is for God's people to obey him and his word. They need us to walk in his grace. The world needs us to flee from youthful passions and live faithful in all things. What the world needs is for the church of Jesus Christ to be the church of Jesus Christ. Now, when I use the term self-government, it's, it's pretty, it, it explains itself. Take responsibility. Govern yourselves. Be Christians. I'm referring to the saving work of God's Spirit because by faith we come to Christ and are saved. Our eyes are opened. Our hearts begin to beat. Our lives begin to look like our Savior. And this is all of God's grace through and through. You've done nothing to purchase your, your salvation. You couldn't earn it. You couldn't purchase it, purchase it. It's all of grace. You're not as great as you think you are. You're just not. 
And praise be to God that Jesus is. Amen? He is your substitute. He took your place. Jesus came to restore the broken sinner. He came to free us from our bondage so that we would walk in his righteousness and reveal to others that they can be freed from their bondage. This is why Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And why do we belong to God? What type of possession are we? A possession that proclaims the excellencies of Jesus, who has called us out of our darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. He came to create one new race, a holy temple built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, himself being the cornerstone. Jesus paid for your sins. Your sins were crucified with the Son of God. Your sins died when Jesus died. Your sins were crucified to him, and they were taken down to the grave. And when he came back from the dead, your sins didn't come back with him. They're gone. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that the death that Jesus died, he died to sin. He has made a way for people to walk in righteousness. Your sins are dead. We have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is we no longer live, but Christ who lives in us. Amen? The whole idea behind God's demand for people to self-govern is another way of saying that God has given us what we need in order to believe him and obey him. And then, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, be useful for him. To be useful. To go ahead and live out the good works that he has already planned for us to live out way before the foundations of the earth were even laid. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. God's going to save you, and I have good works prepared for you. But we sit here today realizing this is not easy, isn't it? This is not easy. Yes, we are a new creation, and we have been given this glorious message of triumph and victory in Jesus Christ. But now ask yourself this question. Why is it that our nation filled with millions of people who believe in Jesus Christ. Millions of people who believe that they have been freed from their bondage of sin. Millions of people who would profess that they have the most glorious message in all of the world. How is it that a year like 2020 is possible? Don't read into that further than I want you to. How is it that a nation with millions of born-again Jesus followers are being led by the enemies of God who think it's quite natural for men to identify as women. You think God and government is not a topic you should be considering? Think again. How can it be that a nation filled with millions of people who have been freed from their bondage of sin and transferred in the marvelous light of Jesus Christ still murder millions of babies each year and then applaud it. How is it that a nation filled with regenerate minds, minds who can grasp the truth of God's word, lose our collective mind?
church has been knocked back on our heels. And it is because I believe we are ashamed of the gospel. That is something we will struggle with, you know, being ashamed of the gospel, because if it wasn't, Paul wouldn't tell us to not be ashamed of it. When you read a command in the Bible, you know why it's there? It's because we need to hear it. God commands to our weaknesses. So when Paul says, do not be ashamed of the gospel, what is he inferring? We may be ashamed of the gospel. We've been knocked back on our heels because we may be ashamed of the gospel. And as a result of this shame, we have resolved to keep this good message hidden in our hearts and trapped between our ears. Like a scared child in a dark room, cowering under the covers, waiting for the sunrise, we're simply not bold enough to face the darkness with the glorious light of Jesus Christ. Whatever you think about 2020, whatever you think, there are a few things that are evident. This past year, in order to preserve life, we stopped living. For the fear of losing our lives, we outlawed living. For the fear of dying, we put death the very thing that keeps us alive. The streets were silent, businesses were closed, weddings canceled, communities encouraged to put up the proverbial walls of inhospitality. Our nation's churches emptied, and some today sit empty. Go throughout the Bible and read all the apocalyptic ver verses that we see. The ones that we think, whew, I'm never going to see that. We saw it. At one time, it would have been difficult to imagine a silent world as ours. A world with no celebrations. No singing. No feasting. And we love to feast. That's what we love to do. This past year, we were encouraged to live by the one great commandment, no celebrating. And look, this is all well and fine, really. What our world did in 2020 is all well and fine if we are mere biological accidents. But the stomach is more than food and the body more than clothing. Amen? We're created in the image of God. And all of this points to what is very self-evident of the rise of a new religion. If you were concerned of secularism, remember that term? I grew up and my parents said, secularism, secularism, secularism. Yeah. I remember when we used to only think about, I can't believe they're going to teach evolution in the schools. Remember when that was a major concern? That's gone. What you are witnessing now is a new paganism. A religion that does not call us into joyful singing, feasting, or fellowship. A religion governed by worthless idols and unregenerate people. A religion that does not possess the power to replace the guilty heart 
so it encourages people to place their guilt on someone else? A religion that does not possess the power to remove the shameful, the shameful stain of our sin, so it teaches us to shame others instead? A religion that is not loving or logical, yet goes to great lengths to prove that it is both. A religion that seeks to ban anything offensive, but has yet to ban pornography. A religion that allows you to live as you choose so long as you do what you are told. A religion that demands allegiance to the orders and the decrees of the lesser magistrates because they know what's best for us. A religion that attempts to outlaw Christian, spirit-filled fellowship. Which, church, is the sweetest thing to ever exist. Amen? There's a reason we're told to greet one another with a holy kiss. There's a reason we're told to feast and smile and sing and laugh. There's a reason. Because this is who we're created to be. A religion that outlaws fellowship and instead of fellowship seeks to isolate people and then it encourages them to pursue their lust without shame and in the open. You might think, listening to me now, that I've been 20 miles south preaching like this for a straight year. We have not been. We've been on our knees, repenting. So let me encourage you. If you have a lot of opinions right now, I'm glad you do. We all do. That's normal. Don't be surprised when somebody has an opinion. But let me encourage you to spend more time on your knees repenting of the way you've lived and the way you've thought and the way you've led others. Judgment starts in the house of God. Like Goliath before Israel, the vain philosophies of our day marched out in the battlefield and openly mocked our Lord. Like Goliath, the doctrines of men blasphemed our God and we like the men of Israel, stood there too afraid to engage. On top of this, those who sought to be like a David, to take a step forward in faith and go chop the head off the giant, those who could muster enough courage to face the wickedness of this generation were considered harsh, quarrelsome, mean. Men who dared preach like that they sinned against the supreme ethic, which is to be nice. By the way, isn't that the greatest commandment? Be nice? Church, we need more warriors like David. We need more men, women, and children who are not ashamed of the gospel. Now is the time to live like Christians. It's time to be a David. It's time to take a step forward and look Goliath in the face and announce to him and all of Israel that he is no match for our God. Notice that about David. Young boy, he's rugged. He killed a lion with his bare hands. We have no idea what that's like. I don't even want to try it. 
I don't know what boys were like back then, but they were tough. But why was he able to do what he did? Fill the Spirit of God? Amen. Yes. Which is why you do most of what you do. When you say, man, I can't believe I did that. You shouldn't believe you did it. God did it through you. But I believe David was raised to know his God. To believe his God. To trust in his God. He looked at a giant man who held a door for a shield and thought that five rocks would do the trick. He believed something deep down in his soul. He believed that his God actually existed. And the God that he believed in was not hidden in here and it wasn't stored up here. That God shone through every action of David's. He believed him. He knew who his God was. He knew who he was. And no matter how big Goliath was, he was no match, David says, for the Lord of hosts. No match. Church, Proverbs 28.1. Think about this. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. What ought to concern you is that we are surrounded by people who run when no one is chasing, who hide when no one's trying to seek them, who live in fear when there's nothing to be afraid of. And why? Because they have not been freed from the bondage of darkness. Why does David stand before Goliath? Because the righteous are as bold as a lion. Church, guilty people can be controlled. Why is it important that you kneel in confession to your God each and every Sunday? We do the same. Why is it important that you not only do it here, but you do it throughout the week? Why is it important that fathers and mothers lead their children in confession of sin every day? Because a guilty person cannot be controlled. Sorry, a a free person cannot be controlled. Why, throughout history, are Christians persecuted, mocked, and scorned? Is it because we're moralist and prudish and uptight? No. It's because we cannot be controlled by the vain philosophies of evil men. And why can we not be controlled? Because the Son has set us free. Jesus says this, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. That is deeper and wider than we give it credit for. We are free in Christ. Those who have been given the gift of righteousness, paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, will live as bold as a lion. And if you have not, repent, change your mind. Our sin no longer has a hold on us. Christ has broken every chain. Just as David was the champion of the people all those years ago, Jesus Christ reigns as our champion today, tomorrow, and forevermore. He is the one who has come to our aid. He crushed the head of the serpent. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. And as he reigns, we now reign with him. No longer do we need to live like Adam and Eve, blaming one another for the sin, and then when that didn't work, blaming the serpent. No longer do we need to live like Cain, when questioned about his brother's death, say, am I my brother's keeper? 
No longer are we to live like Joseph's brothers, maintaining a life of lies to cover up our deepest sin. By God's grace, we have been chosen, forgiven, set free, and restored. And because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, we can live like Joseph. Who, when approached by Potiphar's wife, said these words. Genesis records, he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he is in in my charge, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. What's the last line of David's response when approached with sin? How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What is the difference? What is the difference of people who are stuck in their lusts and the church of Jesus Christ? We can say, I am no better than you, but I live under a power that you do not possess, and I can say no. How do you control a nation of people? Unfettered, unlimited lusts. Whether it be money, which keeps keeps coming. Notice that when the money is given out, we don't say much for a while. Access to anything our sinful hearts desire without repercussions. Church, we are to look out in this world and grieve. And then we're here to go and proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ. That which our neighbors are enslaved to is not good for them. And you have been sent to go and tell them. No longer is the gospel of Jesus Christ for only in here and only up here and only in this room. It's for the world. We need not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God into salvation. And this is where some of us do struggle because we say, I used to be like that. That was me. I'm ashamed that I needed help. I'm ashamed that I was a wretched sinner and I had no hope without the person of Jesus Christ coming to find me. In fact, we are so prideful, we live in shame. Church, whether you like it or not, Jesus in you is making all things new. So just lay down your arms and give up. Right now, Jesus Christ fills all things, right? That's what the Bible says. He is making you new. If you are a Christian, he's making you new. Stop fighting him. Just stop and let go. Walk in the Spirit. Imperfectly, yes. That's why we confess. That's why we stand as an assurance. That's why we do those things. Church, we're not moralists. We're Christians. We ought to proclaim from the rooftops that we are wretched sinners saved by the great mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the world needs to hear. I will begin to end, which means I got plenty of time. And I don't even know how long this place goes. But I will, you use papers, we just, okay. I want to read a quote, a piece of Christian history from a man named David Bentley Hart. This is what he writes about the first century Christians. I think it's fantastic. He says, I am the Lord thy God, says the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
And for Israel, this was the first and foremost, a demand of fidelity by which God bound his people to himself. Even in the later years, it became also a proclamation to the nations. To Christians, however, the commandment came through, and so therefore they were bound to Christ as such. It was not simply a prohibition of foreign cults, but a call to arms, an assault upon the antique order of heavens, a declaration upon the gods. All of the world was to be evangelized and baptized. All the idols torn down. All the worship given over to the one true and living God. In the latter days, he had sent his son into the world for our salvation. And it was a long and sometimes terrible conflict, occasionally exacting a faithful price in the martyr's blood. But it was, by any just estimation of victory, the temple of Zeus and Isis alike were finally deserted. Both the Pain and the Dithyram ceased to be sung. Altars were bereft of their sacrifices. The Sibylus fell silent. And ultimately the, glory, ultimately, the glory and nobility and the cruelty of the ancient world lay supine at the feet of Jesus Christ, the conqueror. What did the gospel do all those centuries ago? It toppled every idol. Just like Dagon wants to sit next to the ark, right? What's going to happen? It's going to come crashing down. Church, God has shaken the world. You better believe God has shaken the world. What we've lived through are tumultuous mercies. And he will continue to shake the world. But you ought not fear. You ought not fear for your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. Because there, in the midst of the rubble, is an unshakable kingdom. One with open doors who will welcome any sinner in need of salvation. Amen? An unshakable kingdom which can never be shaken. For the early Christians, he continues. For the early Christians, I am the Lord thy God was not a mere metaphor. This was all of life. When a Gentile convert stood in the baptistry on Easter's Eve, and before descending naked into the waters, we, we don't need to do that, and before, before descending naked into the waters, turned to the west to renounce the devil and the devil's ministers. He was rejecting and, in fact, reviling the gods in bondage to which he had languished his whole life. When someone was baptized all those years ago, they would look to the West and revile every evil idol they had given themselves to. They would call them out and mark them and say, no more. I am done. I am free. Then he would turn to the East I don't know what. He would turn to the east to confess Christ. He was entrusting himself to the invincible hero who had plundered hell of all of its captives. The hero who had overthrown death. The hero who had subdued the powers of the air. The hero who had been raised as Lord of all of history. Amen? For the early church, this was spiritual warfare. And no baptized Christian could doubt how great a transformation of self and of the world it would result in. 
He was content to serve no other gods than the Christ that had been revealed to him. The topic of God and government isn't going to be just a few weeks of telling you how to vote. I actually won't even say anything like that. It won't be making fun of our current politicians because that would be unchristian. Topics of God and government are to help the church wake up and realize that Jesus is Lord of everything, whether those people believe it or not. And the church is called to proclaim that goodness in multiple ways, in all sorts of different ways. But let me remind you, if you're all fired up and ready to go, you still have to act like Christians. To go out into the world and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord in an unchristian way really doesn't help. We will turn the other cheek. We will pray for those who persecute us, and you ought to be. We will lay down our lives so that our enemies would become our friends. Think of the Apostle Paul as he enters heaven. Just think about the Apostle Paul. He died, and he is now with the Lord. And when he entered heaven, who did he stare in the eyes of? Who was he looking at? All the people he killed. What message is greater than that? Paul, the persecutor of the church, goes to heaven and is welcomed to the applause of everyone he killed for believing in Jesus Christ. I pray for our church to become bold. Our church, this church, the church. But not bold in a way that's harsh and brash and rude. Bold enough to just stand in our place and say, I will not move because I am free. And the gospel that I believe and that has saved me is offered now to you today. Repent, turn, and become a friend of God. If anything, this is a call for the church to rise, to stand in the victory of Jesus Christ. Remember, as you leave here today, the death he died, he died to sin. Your sins are gone. They no longer have the power to shame you or control you. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a call for the church to rise and to wake from our slumber, to pick up our cross, and like joyful warriors, go and proclaim the message of the gospel. Let me pray with you. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled before you today. Father, I ask that you would draw a straight line with every single crooked one I just scribbled. I pray that your spirit would empower us, would fill us, so that we would love our neighbors enough to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. Father, we are broken cisterns in need of repair. Heal us, restore us by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit. We ask these things, we pray these things in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.